0: Welcome into The Looking Glass, the podcast for speculative poets and poetry lovers alike. Join me, Jasmine Arch, on a journey into a world where nothing is what you expect it to be. Together with speculative poets from across the world and from all levels of experience, we'll be exploring the magic behind this fascinating genre and hopefully have a few laughs along the way. Greetings, Looking Glass Travellers, and welcome to the December episode. First of all, I owe you a bit of an apology because I had to find refuge with my mic upstairs in big, echoey rooms. Because downstairs, people are using power tools and being quite noisy. But that ties in perfectly with the rest of the episode, because there again, I have to apologize for the audio quality. Guest of the hour, Linda Ann Lochavo, and I had a few technical issues that made recording rather tricky. And it made it rather impossible to get a lot of the background noises out of the recording entirely. I did do my best. You may also notice a few dog cameos on my end and cat cameos on Linda-Anne's end, um, and it is what it is. There's a big dog cameo that I took out, and for those who do enjoy that sort of stuff, I added it on as an excerpt. At the end of the episode, um, along with the story I told linda Ann about the pet ghost I used to have in, it almost feels like a different lifetime, but I'm pretty sure it was this one, but it was a while ago. In in personal news, I have some good and some bad, and the good is actually poetry related, because my poem A Triad Arises was published on November 24th in an anthology called Chlorophobia, an eco-horror anthology which is full of poetry and flash fiction, and I've really been enjoying reading my author copy. The bad news is that someone totaled my car by driving full speed into the back of it, which is not fun, but it could be worse because uh, I came out more or less okay. The person in the other car is fine as well, and that's what matters most, I suppose. Um, But let's get into the interview with Linda Ann. I had so much fun talking to her, and I hope you enjoy the episode as well. Linda Anne Lociavo is a poet, freelance journalist and dramatist from New York City. Her poetry has been published in many journals and anthologies, including Mermaid's Monthly, Bewildering Stories, Ophelian, Blood & Bourbon, Starline, British Fantasy Society, South Broadway Ghost Society and other places from A to Z, from Amsterdam Quarterly to Zoetic Press. She's written plays such as the 2004 Courting May West and a documentary film on early 20th century actress and producer Texas Gwynin. And on top of all that, she edits the English language section of LIDEA magazine and runs a critique circle in the SFPA. You can find some of her poems, narrated and set to music, on her YouTube channel, Linda Ann Literary. Her collection, A Route Obscure and Lonely, which was released in 2020 by Warpshot Press, recently won an Elgin Award. Hi, Linda Anne, and first of all, welcome into the Looking Glass and huge congratulations on that Elgin Award. Thank
1: you, Jasmine. It's wonderful to be here with you from New York City
0: all the way to where you are across the Atlantic. Beckefurt, Belgium, (laughs) which is the middle of nowhere. (laughs) Can you tell us what's been going on in your poetic life lately, other than, of course, the Elgin Wood. With my critique group,
1: we are producing our first group book together. It's called Messengers of the Macabre. And we have all sorts of wonderful things in it, such as uh, an exquisite corpse, which loops around several of the poems, taking lines from all the poems and making new poems about it. We're having an illustration for each section. We're very excited about it. We're just about to finish. One of the delays is because a key member of the group just moved to Belgium. (laughs) (laughs) Now there are two of you to start a separate a separate chapter of SFPA in the Belgium chapter. Well,
0: we'll have to get to work on that. (laughs) And I've
1: also been putting together various books of my own, such as a combination speculative and paranormal collection, which I'm very excited about, called Dark and Airy Spirits. A lot of people have been announcing that they're coming out of the closet and I have decided during the pandemic, it's time for me to come out of the closet and present myself to the world, my true secret second identity as a necromancer. Oh, wow.
0: That's a lot of exciting stuff in the future. Yes,
1: yes. It's something that I've never put in my writing, uh, I've told no one about it, but I've had a lot of very intense experiences as a clairvoyant, as a time traveller, and a necromancer. And when you read the poems, it will sound speculative, but many of them are first-person
0: encounters with the other side. Excellent. Well, if you have links or if you tweet about them, please do let me know because things have been super hectic. So keeping up with social media seems like a distant dream at this point.
1: (laughs) I will send you links, promise I will. Thank you.
0: But we're here to talk about poetry, not social media. So from your bio, we can already gather that poetry isn't the only thing you write. You're a playwright as well and a freelance journalist. So we know prose is on your menu. Anything else, fiction, comics? Yes. I do write quite a bit of
1: fiction, and a lot of times, thinking about a subject, I'm not finished with it in fiction, mm-hmm. and I will turn it into a poem. A lot of times, writing a one-act play, I'm not satisfied with just having it out there, and I will turn it into a poem, or I'll turn it into a short story. I'm I'm always doing that. I had a ghost experience that is the title poem of Dark and Airy Spirits. It's going to be published in Space and Time. It's called A Dark and Airy Spirit Strolling on Broadway. And I wasn't ready to come out and say that I danced with a ghost on Broadway in front of Grace Church. So I actually wrote it as a fictional story about a depressed widow in the Christmas season Mm -hmm. and a ghost who turns out to be the spirit of her deceased husband and they dance together and she loses track of time in the um, in the other realm and comes back totally, totally restored and changed ver- with the encounter. Now I'm not a lonely widow, <laughs> I didn't meet a spirit of my dead husband, I don't know who this lovely ghost was, but he took full possession of me on Broadway and this happened in the mid-1990s. So as you can see, it's been quite quite a long gestation to actually present it as, well, this happened to me. Very, very interesting experiences with ghosts, all differently. Did we want to talk about ghosts now or move on to uh, the poetry part?
0: No, if you want to talk about ghosts, that's fine. Okay, but the idea of
1: being a playwright Definitely enters into my speculative poetry and all poetry because I'm fond of writing dramatic monologues, and a lot of those are well voiced by Dylan Dagonet on my channel. Mm-hmm. And the one that was nominated for the Rising is a dramatic monologue, a long dramatic monologue. The thing in SFPA is that a lot of us write short poems, but to write a long poem and to be nominated in the long poem category, you know, you have to be over 50 lines, as you know. Yeah. And that's a very long poem, taking the myth of Ceres and Persephone and twisting it. You asked me how a route, obscure and lonely, one of the things that ties it together, it takes myths that you know and stands them on their head. So for example, instead of being dominated by Ceres and Persephone, Ceres goes to a psychic on Mount Olympus to ask for help finding her daughter. And that's what the poem is about. It's a dramatic monologue from this very sassy psychic's point of view, what's going on.
0: Right. I love that you turn myths around like that. It's something I find myself doing a lot in my own work. Mm -hmm. So it always fascinates me, no end.
1: You had asked me about the interview with the poet magazine about my writing a first poem when i was three and a half and how that happened Mm -hmm. and you can have in your creative life good role models and you can have in your life bad role models and there were so many bad role models with poetry we were getting a lot of greeting cards and you know what greeting card verse is like
0: Mm -hmm.
1: and also i was being taught songs (laughs) when i was three and a half and these lyrics were just I thought moronic, and I said, Well, I'm here, I'm here to do better than this. And I was three and a half years old, and we were living with family at the time. And one of my aunts is really wonderful sketch artist, so we decided to create our own greeting card line. And she would do the sketches, and then I'd be motivated to write a poem about it. And we were sending these to two family members as greeting cards, we had our own little greeting card line Hallmark, look out! (laughs)
0: oh that's super fascinating yes that's so you you were basically setting the trends of doing your own greeting cards way before people were just doing it all the time yes with like their photos and everything that's awesome (laughs)
1: <laughs> that was my first venture into capitalism when i was three and a half except we didn't charge anybody for the uh greeting cards we just sent them through the mail but they were very well received because uh, they were all um i didn't i didn't have i couldn't type on my aunt's sketch so you know then it becomes like an asian scroll all hand done so and and there are no no examples left of those things. I don't think anyone kept the cards, so I don't have any in my archives. But that's how it all started. My aunt would do a clown. I would write a poem about it. She would do a ballerina. I would do a poem about it. She would sketch the Empire State Building, and there would be a poem and and so forth. So that's how it all started. But also, I was taken to the theater in New York when I was four and a half. And I had seen a lot of theater by the time I was nine years old, so I wrote my first one-act play. And I had my friends from the Girl Scouts as I wrote a play based on the novel Little Women. And there were five girls in the cast, Marmee and the four March sisters. And it had a good, nice run in Brooklyn for several months and it was produced, I produced it when I was 10 years old. I did the costumes, I did the directing,
0: the casting, everything. Awesome. So if you did the costumes, was that in like a historical setting or did you reimagine the story to modern times?
1: No, it was pretty easy because the girls were told that they had to wear a simple white blouse and I did long skirts. Nice. Amy had a skirt with an apron attached to it and uh, Joe had more of a dark skirt and, um, you know, then so forth. So some some look more playful, some skirts look more serious and so forth. And I only had a very, very basic manual typewriter and I had to type the script seven times. And the first rule was that they would show up to rehearsals. The second rule was that they had to show up the day of. And the third rule was that they couldn't lose the script because otherwise I would have have to hand type it. I didn't know about photocopying. And if I did know, I wouldn't have had any money for photocopying. So each one of those scripts was hand typed by Linda Ann.
0: Wow. That's um, that's pretty brave to, like, just put that on at that age. So yeah, hat off for that.
1: Thank you. you Thank you.
0: So, and as you grew into being a poet and built up your skill and comprehension, that must have changed your outlook on what poetry is and like its significance and meaning.
1: Yes. And also, I'm still a formalist. So, of course, all the great rhyming poets had a tremendous effect on me more than they've influenced for example today's experimental poets um Mm. the formalism is not always appreciated by the current crop of editors so it's somewhat disguised through iambic pentameter which is blank verse and unrhymed so some people catch it and some people don't but for the current book i only got one sort of negative comment in the 10 or 12 reviews in the book, A Route, Obscure and Lonely. They were all rave reviews, but one SFPA member, Joshua Gage, said when he reviewed the book in Cemetery Dance, he said, there was just too much iambic pentameter and I longed for something different. And I have a lot of respect for Joshua Gage, who was in my first critique group. And I thought about that. So this current book has tremendous variety. It has villanelles, decastich, prose poems, haibuns, sonnets, the whole the whole gamut of what's possible on the page. Hybrid poems, and that's how you learn from your colleagues who you trust. Uh, that's how you learn from each other in a critique group. And that one comment stuck with me and said, well, in my next book, I have to just not produce the same poems, the sonnets, the regular iambic pentameter. I have to give the reader more variety, more shape, uh, different sounds in their mouth and, and so forth. So it's, all, it's a tremendous learning experience to be an SFPA, connect with people who you trust and respect and learn from them. One woman in my group was writing a lot of nonettes. I had never heard of a narnette. I started writing a narnette and my first nanette was just published in Starline.
0: Awesome. Yes. I have to admire the way you just take on forms like that because I'm very much a free-form poet. You mean free verse? Yeah. Okay. Yeah, yeah sorry. Um, and I know when I, like, put this constraint on myself of fitting a poem into a certain form, mm-hmm. I know it pushes my limits in a way that's good, and it's going to enrich and inform future work as well. But I tend to chicken out.
1: Mm. Do you write dramatic monologues as, as much as I do?
0: Mm, no, um, I've never actually tried to describe <laughs> my poems. Ah, okay. Okay. Um, I think I mostly try to see or imagine the world or a part of the world or a certain environment from a different pair of shoes than my own. Mm -hmm. And sometimes it's a dragon. Sometimes it's a dryad. Mm -hmm. Yeah. It can be a lot of things, but I try very much to like inhabit the world I'm trying to show in my poems. Of course. But, um, yeah. I am I keep staring at a sonnet that I have literally one stanza of, <laughs> mm. and it never gets
1: finished. That's because you're probably writing it as an Elizabethan sonnet, as opposed to my format, which is the Petrarchan sonnet. And I find a lot of people are using the Elizabethan sonnet and It's so skimpy. You only get those last two lines at the end for the volta. But the Petrarchan gives you so much more space because you have the octet and the sestet. And that's probably where you're going astray because you're not given enough room in the form you're using. You're just trying to have that volta in the last two lines, which is so, it's so tight. It, It only works for a certain kind of subject. It really doesn't work for a lot of subjects.
0: Well, I only just learned about the Petrarchan sonnet. Ah. Um, yeah, on a different poetry podcast actually. Um, it's called A Mouthful of Air. Okay. And it's by a British poet, and it's really fascinating because he alternates like historical poems, mm-hmm. in which he reads the poem and then he goes into a discussion on the craft behind it and the symbolism, etc. And then he reads it again. Um, and it the way the the things you've learned about the poem sort of completely informs the way you then absorb the poem. And he does the same thing with contemporary poets. Interesting. Except he has them read their own poem. And then they discuss the poem, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. What's his name? His name is Mark 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 McGuinness. Okay. Yeah. And the podcast is called A Mouthful of Air. I will send you a link to the episode. Interesting. Um, I don't know, the poem read wasn't a Petrarchan sonnet, but I believe it was discussed there. But I'll send you a link and I will include a link in the episode notes as well. Because it's a really interesting podcast to follow. Interesting.
1: Interesting. Yeah. As a formalist, I've been writing rondelles, rondos, sonnets, and and so forth, fitting the formalism into new forms and there's this execrable thing called the modern sonnet which is not really a sonnet except it's a poem of 14 lines so i, I don't i don't write those <laughs> i just have too much disrespect <laughs> if you're going to do a sonnet i think you should do it properly you know but anyway that that's my opinion and i'm not the editor of any uh, any zine but not all of my poems are speculative lately i've been writing non-fiction poems about new york city crimes and suicides and also some high boons about that, which have been greatly embraced by editors. It's really wonderful. I also have an erotic poetry collection that came out the same year. It's called Concupiscent Consumption. That was by Red Ferret Press. And there was lovely photograph from my friend in North Carolina, Dennis Edwards, on it, a nude woman. And it really kept all the reviews and all the interviews quite suppressed because there's so many people who won't feature any sort of erotica. They feel it's going to be pornography. And the the book is not about pornography at all. But that's the perception. People are still afraid of sex and they're afraid of ghosts. So I have to to take on both sex and ghosts. And uh, my alien poem in the book, is about an erotic encounter with an alien, so.
0: (laughs) (laughs) Well, I think a lot of of what people are scared of Mm -hmm. is something we need to push back against. Yes. Because, I mean, yes, there's a safety component in sort of the whole um, discourse around like erotic stories. And sometimes they can portray a very... Unsafe way of 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 experiencing it, like, God, just think of fifty shades of gray. Yes, it is such an irresponsible portrayal of that whole scene. Um, but I think it can be done so well, and I love that you're doing it.
1: Oh, thank you. Thank you. You asked me once if I had a process and how I go about things. and unless it's a very, very short poem, just like with fiction or with a play. I always begin with an outline and I feel that outlines are so helpful to people and a lot of times when you're lost in a poem at part of composing it or you set it aside, if you would just outline it, even if you don't outline it in the traditional way that we've been taught to in school, but just write it what you want to say on an index card, it just gives you so much clarity where you want to start and where you want to? And I just had a poem accepted. It's also going to be in *Messengers of the Macabre*. About have you ever heard of Washington Irving and the legend of Sleepy Hollow, the headless horseman? It's been done a lot in
0: films. Um, I re- I saw the one of the films. Johnny Depp, right? Yeah, the Tim Burton one because if Tim Burton does a thing, I have to see it. Mm-hmm. <laughs> but like the original story is on my list, but I never seem to get round to it.
1: Oh, I can mail you the story. I can mail you the story. The Guttenberg Project did it. Oh. Yeah, I can, I can send it. I wanted to reread the whole story before I started the poem. And I searched to see if anyone had written a poem about the Headless Horseman. And believe it or not, they it only surfaces now and then in children's poetry books no one has seemed to taken it on so i wrote a narrative poem from a completely different point of view you know do you remember how it ends uh where it's supposed to be the headless horseman but it really isn't it's a rival suitor to Ichabod Crane and he pretends he's the headless horseman and he throws a pumpkin and the pumpkin smashes in the road. Do you remember that part? Yeah. So my protagonists are a bunch of pumpkin stealers and they're going around raiding farms and they feel that very, very secure in their thievery that everybody's so f- afraid of ghosts coming out of the cemetery and the headless horsemen and so forth They're not going to be interrupted and all of a sudden the headless horseman shows up And they're so terrified that these pumpkin-stealers all have to run in different directions so it's a way of taking the original the familiar that everybody's already known the p- mm-hmm moving it into a different direction just like with the Ceres and persephone being retold Mm -hmm. as a psychic who has her own opinions about you know son it's called the son-in-law from hell (laughs) because that of course he is right hades
0: yeah yeah literally no um that's fascinating and if you have like a clear direction you're going in an outline makes so much sense I've never actually tried it. I really should. Oh, you really
1: should. You really should. And also just have
0: a critique partner that you normally exchange poems with. A a couple of friends of mine and I, we have a critique group Ah, and we've got some poets in there, Mm -hmm. but we tend to focus a lot on fiction and I really want to start critiquing more poetry as well. Mm
1: -hmm. I'm also in a speculative fiction writing workshop and we meet once a week.
0: Yeah, we, our group is, um, spans all time zones. So actually meeting in person can be tricky, Mm -hmm. but we tend to like send each other notes when we're critiquing, but yeah, I, I, I've been thinking maybe I should join a a separate group for poetry because we always end up critiquing fiction. (laughs) Ah,
1: you you definitely want to be in a critique group just with poets or just have a critique partner. You don't have to have a group just one person who's at your level, who understands Mm -hmm. the kind of work you're doing. You know, for example, I really don't like haiku. Even though I've started to write haibun, which incorporate haiku, I just don't get any frisson of delight out of haiku, and I wouldn't be a good partner for somebody who mostly wants to write haiku or tanker, Renga, Senru, whatever. uh, That wouldn't be a good person for me to be around because I don't respect Mm. them, I don't get any delight (laughs) out of it. So getting a critique partner in poetry still doesn't mean, uh, well, they're speculative poets, I'm a speculative poet. That's not necessarily a good match. It has to be someone who is at your career stage and someone who is also writing similar things. For example, if I'm writing formal verse, a good match for me is not necessarily someone who's always writing in free verse. So you want to get a certain similarity and certain differentness. So you learn from each other.
0: Yeah, that makes total sense. It's really great advice, actually. Thank you. Um, yeah, something to think about. Um. I
1: find that a lot of people who complain to me about their critique groups, they are trying to meet over Discord or over Zoom, and my circle doesn't work like that. First of all, we're all in very different places, we're in different time zones and so forth, and I don't find that I want to hear someone talk about my poem and try to write notes about it. I'd rather... the the people just do it on paper, uh, so we just email it. So I would suggest a poetry critique group for you or a poetry critique mm. partner. I would start with just one partner, just do it one on one. Set up a schedule. Uh, for example, you're going to do what we do is we just share one poem a month. We don't put restrictions on the length of the poem, but so sometimes they're short, sometimes they're long, and we do one round of critiquing. And then if someone is entering a contest, or as with me, I was working on my ghost book, which I'm still working on, I still have about five more poems to write up, and then I'll be all set forming the manuscript and ready to send it out and hope, uh, hope someone just says, this is what the world wants. That's what we always wish for, right? Right. But the idea of it going through sometimes two rounds of critiquing is what you need because you revise the poem and then share it with the group again. And we've been very indulgent with each other. We'll go through a second round if it's important to the person because it's for a book, it's for a contest. But it, it can be quite exhausting. It can take away a lot of your own time writing to focus on other people. And that's why you have to have people around you who you feel a commonality with. Uh, For a while, we just had so many horror poems, horror poets in the group, and we, uh, we didn't really enjoy reading that kind of poem. It seemed to be horror for its own sake. I write a lot of horror poetry, but as with The Legend of Sleepy Hollow, uh, the horror is suggested. It's not the, the raison d'être for the poem. Do you know what I mean?
0: Yeah, yeah, that makes sense. Sometimes, like, you don't want to see the monster. Exactly. And to be honest, sort of the the, the broody, understated suspense is so much more scary to me. Definitely. than Than any sort of over-the-top monstrosities or gore or slasher stuff
1: well even better is why susan hill's book was so successful. the woman in white was so successful because the horror is also made sympathetic yeah even though she's this terrible creature and she's killing all the children in the town and so forth she's a mother who's in mourning for her own child and that what gives it the sympathetic understandable edge and people who write horror don't always examine it from all its sides and my ghost poems are not horror poems. The ghosts are sympathetic and understandable and some they're summoning me and sometimes I'm summoning them. I spent a
0: year with a ghost and we wrote a play together. Awesome. Um, Did you ever read um the Beowulf translation by Maria Davana Headley? No. She does that with with the Grendel's mother. Hmm. Interesting. She 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 takes the monster out and she she portrays her as a grieving mother. Very interesting. Very interesting. Yeah, it's it was a really fascinating read. She also she takes like she takes the alliterative illiter- verse mm-hmm. and she combines it with like social media language and Um, like contemporary vernacular Mm. and it just it was so fascinating and it just I read the whole thing out loud because I couldn't not interesting she also wrote a modern day adaptation and also again humanizes both Grendel and Grendel's mother and it's so amazing
1: that's so so important to do that and a lot of horror poetry and horror writing fails because they have a failure a certain block about seeing it from the other side why is this ghost doing it and that's why i'm never afraid of a ghost because i just don't even understand the fear of ghosts because it's our species right they're human beings and they're dead Mm -hmm. but it's not their fault that they're dead and one day we'll be on the other side too so why not learn from these people? And I've learned so much from ghosts, and ghosts have enriched my life in immeasurable ways. And for example, writing a play with a ghost, we spent a year together, but even better, She left me money several times, and she found the producer, and she also attended rehearsal, moved the furniture on the set, and there were 12 witnesses who saw it. Very cool.
0: (laughs) Yes. That takes collaboration to a whole new level.
1: (laughs) It really does. It really does. And I feel when the ghost was with me and when the ghost Mm -hmm. was not and the idea of communicating with a ghost I would check on certain things about the play with her to ask uh, you know was this all right to include this is my impression of her life and so forth and tell her to give me a sign just a sign any sign and the sign was always that she would leave me cash in the same spot on one street that had six intersections and the money would always be in exactly the same spot despite the traffic and despite the wind and it wouldn't be a lot of money in one case it was a five dollar bill seven dollars and so forth but it was always our sign and then she found the producer
0: cool yes well it's something that so often gets forgotten that the other is also human, whether it be a ghost or someone on the other side of a military conflict, or it's so easy to dehumanize what you don't know or don't understand. And I think pushing back against that really enriches both our writing and ourselves as human beings. Very well expressed, thank you. So is there a poet or a writer who's had a defining influence on your work? Yes, there definitely
1: has. I had a very unusual friendship in the sixth grade in Catholic elementary school, and at the time, we were both library nerds, we both spent a lot of time reading, but I was reading things like Shakespeare and Charles Lamb and so forth, and this boy, I was a choir girl, he was an altar boy, we were (laughs) classmates. And he was the one who introduced me to Chaucer, Froissart, Thomas Mallory, and the Arthurian canon. And we had very different lives. We never saw each other after the eighth grade, but I became a medievalist. My first graduate degree is in medieval literature. And he went into this role-playing group called the Society for Creative Anachronism, and he just decided he wanted to live in the fantasy world and it really it really killed his whole life Uh, his whole thing was that he wanted to be a fantasy king in SCA and I was writing academic articles while he was trying to be a king in this kingdom and a king in that kingdom but he changed my whole reading to point me in the direction of the great medieval poets and even earlier And my poem recently published about him is called The Dungeon Ghost. He became a murderer for hire. He killed a few people. He died. He was serving a lifetime sentence in prison. And while he was dying Mm -hmm. and after he was dead, he reached out to me because everyone had abandoned him. His wife had divorced him. His children wanted nothing to do with him. His crimes were really, really, really cruel and terrible. And it was all because he was in need of money and so forth. Terrible reason to take another life, especially when you don't even know these people. Murder for hire and so forth. And my poem about him is in the book, and it was also just recently published by a publication called The 504, and it's called The Dungeon Ghost. It's way too long to read. It's four, four pages. But the important thing about him is that when everyone had abandoned him, his ghost came back to me and wanted a fine favour.
0: And that's my Dungeon Ghost poem in the book. Right. Well, that's... um quite the influence um because it it also comes full circle yes because he pushed you in a certain direction early on yes and then now it all came back in a way so that's very cool yes i hadn't i
1: hadn't seen him since the eighth grade i really gave not one thought about him uh there was no internet or anything like that. I never tried to find him or look for him or anything. Just completely forgot about him even as I was writing my master's thesis about Chaucer's book of the Duchess and so forth and learning how to speak Middle English properly and so forth. Never gave one thought to say, oh be nice if you know I ran into him and I could tell him what I was doing. Just went off in two different tracks and then to find out this is how he spent his life uh, just ruining himself. Uh, The poem has a line and it says, fantasy twitched, hid its murderous heart. And I followed fantasy as an academic and as someone who was very interested in the text. And he followed fantasy, uh, just wanting to fulfill his vanity and had kingdoms all over the place so (laughs) took us in two different directions so everything has a good side and everything has a bad side but when when he was dying in prison and when his ghost was so lonely his body was not even claimed by his family so the inmates buried it in a potter's field in florida that that prison was using uh he came back to his friend of his bosom from childhood and asked for a final boon and it was very very difficult to fulfill his request but I'm sure you saw the movie The Sixth Sense and he says I see dead people and the dead people always want something invariably dead people do want something and they lack agency yes they can uh, switch on your vacuum cleaner or uh, rattle your shower curtain and they can move from place to place faster than you can but Ghosts don't have the agency that human beings do, and since they don't have the agency that human beings do, they do need us, and we do need them, because it's a memento mori. Your life will be not forever, and you should use the time wisely.
0: Absolutely. Wow, that's quite a story. Yes, quite a story. Yeah, and like I love that you say they have no agency, and... I'm reminded of a short story I read, I think, two or three years ago, about all these girls who are the the victims of a serial killer. Mm. And they too have no agency. So the only thing they can do is lash out at the people unlucky enough to try and live in the house they inhabit. Mm -hmm. And that story has been so, so inspirational to me. Especially, it's been narrated for a fiction podcast, Mm -hmm. and the narration is so, so good. Mm. Mm. And the name of the story is? Uh, The Coven of Dead Girls. Mm. Mm. For me, that was the first time that a short story literally stopped me in my tracks. Mm. Mm. So, talking about ghosts, if there were any poets, dead or alive, that you could have drinks with, who would it be, and what are you drinking?
1: D.H. Lawrence, and we're in Sicily drinking Prosecco. He had a very short life, as you know, You know, growing up in the mines and so forth, and was always going to uh, very sunny climates to try to help him live longer. Uh, I found mm-hmm. his work so interesting, and he also worked in different forms. He wrote short stories, he wrote plays, he did paintings and so forth, a lot of... Um, a lot of poems about animals, the snake. He's always, always endlessly fascinating. And because he traveled for his health, he lived in various places. You know, he came out of England and he was working in Taos and uh, France, sunny France, uh, Sicily, of course, <laughs> and absorbing the landscape and um, putting it into his writing at a time when a lot of Brits were just writing about British things. So endlessly, endlessly fascinating, a real seminal, seminal influence.
0: That is, I never thought of it that way. The contrast between his work and his contemporaries. But yeah, so must have informed everything he did. Yes, yes. And this is a good way to
1: know that you can take a bad thing, in other words, a health crisis, and you can Mm -hmm. make it into... A creative influence instead of just moaning and groaning. I was very productive during the lockdown is very, very difficult circumstances here in New York. And I just said, okay, I'm not going to go out. I'm going to finish books. I'm going to get manuscripts in certain uh, certain shape, send it out and so forth. And I, I, I broke my leg a few years ago in 2006. And I said, I'm not going to remember this as my wheelchair period. I'm going to remember it for how creative I was and did all sorts of wonderful things during that time. And last year I got all these Christmas cards from family and friends who said they spent the lockdown catching up on T V series and so forth. And I don't I don't own a television. I didn't grow up with a television and I really think it's a fruitless distraction. And I've lived in New York City, so I can go to all the opera I want live. I can go to all the theater I want live. I can go to Lincoln Center, Carnegie Hall, and so forth, and did a lot of that in my life just right before the lockdown. But the whole idea that a memento mori, you will die each day is mm-hmm. a gift that you unwrap or leave on the counter and basically flush down the toilet is something that always strikes me as something you have to keep in mind okay they're bad circumstances make you know lemons make lemonade right but the the whole idea of someone's bad health motivating them also comes true with Stephen Hawking Uh, in documentary I saw his mother Mm -hmm. said that until he realized he was very sick he didn't focus on anything he didn't concentrate his energies and then you know, look at the person Stephen Hawking became under very difficult circumstances.
0: Yeah, absolutely. Do you know a poet called Dominique Parisien? No, unfortunately not. He's he's a a Canadian poet, mm-hmm. and he writes some speculative and non speculative work as well. Mm-hmm. But a lot of his pieces revolve around his disability, ah, and they're so powerful. Mm-hmm. Um, one piece I I will look up the name later because i am terrible at remembering that Mm -hmm. one of his poems really actively looks for the beauty hidden within like painful things I actually i have him on my wish list for this podcast (laughs) so yeah one day but um i will send you a link to that one too and we'll include it in the show notes Okay. I really like the work I've read of him so far. Okay. So, but again, that's just another example of playing the hand you're dealt and not only that, but making the most of it. Yes. Yes. Um, I wish we could all remember more often that, you know, once a day is gone, it's gone. Yes.
1: Yes. And to read these cards about, oh, this is what we were binge watching on television. And I I see it on social media all the time. Some people are always talking about television and everything. And, you know, it really is true. Garbage in, garbage out. You know, if you're spending your time reading good literature, good poets and so forth, you're so informed and encouraged and inspired by them. And one, one of the questions you sent me was, if you could give one piece of advice to a younger Linda Ann starting her journey, what would that be? And, of course, one of that is to read as much as you possibly can, read as widely as you can. But also, I was always trying to find a mentor. I wasn't really successful. But I would say, try to find a mentor. Try to make as many literary friends as you can and focus on good poetry karma. For example, the give and take, your generosity, you're having a podcast, you're giving up your time to interview other people about their work. And that's very, very good poetry karma. Something that people could learn a good lesson from you, Jasmine.
0: Well, it's not entirely unselfish (laughs) because I do get to pick everyone's brain, (laughs) so. So yeah, it's it's um, it's something that I benefit from as a poet for myself and if at the same time I can help shine a little spotlight, because it is still a little spotlight at this point, then why not? Wonderful. Um, so, I think it's time for the prompt of the month, if you have one for us. Well, I have the title
1: poem from my book. My book will be called Dark and Airy Spirits. And this is a poem that has been accepted by Space and Time. The poetry editor, Linda Addison, really loved it. She said it was a very difficult choice between this poem that I wrote and another one called Jim Morrison Reads His Poetry in Père Lachaise Cemetery. And uh, she said that was her second choice that I sent her. This is based on a true ghost encounter, and it's called A Dark and Airy Figure Strolling Along Broadway. Charles Dickens penned his ghost into Yuletide. Scrooge entering a timeless web of myths. Fond season of improbabilities. Angelic virgin birth in Bethlehem. Saint Nick with flying reindeer hauling gifts. Repentant Jacob Marley's sage advice. Belief suspends distrust near Christmas when December dawns, soft gloves of longer dark. A trim, athletic male is up ahead. Ice-silvered sidewalks don't slight his brisk stride. His lips emit no misty clouds. He's lost his shadow, footprints, and solidity. Transparency can give itself away. Existing in stale, timeless time, unknown, until the winter solstice grants short leave to trespass backwards, like storytellers. Grace Church seems otherworldly on my left, baptizing us in atmospheric light. He's manifested to have company, and I decide, why not collide? Comfort this soul by entering the silver crust framing his shape. I swerve, we merge, embrace. He pours his death chill into me. We ride rogues rhythm, waltzing cheek to cheek. Hell tight, feet float. I'm following his lead, possessed, my breath suspended in night's golden bowl. Moon squints, he passes through like a turnstile and fades, returning to his element. Bells chime, resume my life, an open book.
0: Wow, that was really nice. Thank you. A very strong sense of atmosphere. Thank you. So, thank you for that, first of all. Do you also have a writing prompt for our listeners?
1: Yes. The writing prompt is to take a story you read when you were much younger, and turn it around, change the protagonist, change the time frame and write a poem about it.
0: That's super fascinating. Awesome. Thank you.
1: I've done that recently myself.
0: Mm. So listeners, if you play around with this prompt, do let us know, tweet at us, or come visit the Looking Glass Discord server. But yeah, I'm curious what comes out of this. So then our final question is, where can our listeners find out more about you or your work?
1: My books are all on Amazon. My YouTube channel is Linda Ann Literary. And we're still working on my website, which has had a lot of delays because of productivity. But when it's up, I'll send you a link. It's going to be called lindahanloschavo.com. And we'll have certain things. I'm also working on a second website, and it's going to be called Paranormal Poetry. Cool. I want to connect more with people who are writing about ghosts because they've actually seen ghosts you can always tell when Mm -hmm. a poet is a fake they're writing about ghosts that they haven't actually seen you can always tell it's always obvious and one of the people who is very generous to read the manuscript in in progress and give me a wonderful quote for advanced acclaim was the british award-winning journalist will store and maybe you have read his book will store and the supernatural he goes all over england exploring haunted houses meeting with mediums psychics uh, ghost channelers and so forth and he sent a wonderful comment back reading my book and he spoke to a lot of people. He spoke to psychiatrists about ghosts and psychiatrists in Britain were very dismissive of anything speculative. Basically, the one that he quotes in the book, if you don't see it and you can't smell it and taste it, it doesn't exist, which is very, very narrow-minded. I mean, as a speculative poet yourself who writes about witches and dragons and mermaids, I mean, that, that would absolutely kill creativity right there, right? Absolutely.
0: Well, there's an essay by Ursula K. Le Guin, Why Americans are Afraid of Dragons. Interesting. That's, it's definitely one to look up. Interesting. Um, because basically a lot of people prioritise things that make money and things that are tangible. But often they're afraid of creativity and imagination. Yes. Because again, it's something they don't understand. Yes. Um, if I can find the essay, I will include a link. Okay, oh, good, good. Well, Looking Glass Travelers, I think that's all for now. If you enjoyed this interview, please consider sharing it on social media or leaving a review wherever you usually get your podcast fix. Helping more people find our work really is one of the best ways to support your favorite content creators. If you'd like to join the conversation or submit listener questions for future interviews, come and find us on Discord. These links, along with Linda Ann's work and links to her social media will as always be included in the episode notes until next time this is me and Linda Ann saying bye-bye yeah. no if you want to talk about ghosts that's fine okay it just it reminds me very much of a pet ghost i used to have a pet ghost you used to have <laughs>
1: Yeah. (laughs) Have you written about it in a poem?
0: (laughs) No, maybe I should, but it's a funny story, Um, which is, I used to live with my former partner in like military housing. Um, And it's, I think it was about a 1960s home or something. And the, the shower curtain was one of those with a spring that you just clamp in between two walls and it stays in place. And it always felt when I was in the bathroom and there were other things that happened Mm. when I was alone in the house, like a vacuum switching on upstairs or a door opening and closing. And there was something in the basement and very few visitors ever went there voluntarily. So we sort of felt like that's where it lived, Mm. even if it sort of ranged across through the house at times. And at one point I'm in the shower and I'm washing my hair. And the shower curtain drops and the bar hits me square in the forehead. Oh gosh. So I just wrapped a towel around myself, stomped down the stairs, huh. dripping with soapy water. <laughs> and I went into the basement and just yelled at the ghost. Ah. <laughs> and I was like, well, I was, I was already into like witchcraft. So I was like, you know what I've got upstairs. If you don't stop behaving, I'm going to kick you out of this house. This is my house. (laughs) So don't you dare. (laughs) And from then on, he was a well-behaved ghost. (laughs) He still played with a vacuum cleaner from time to time. Sadly, he never realised you're supposed to move it around when you turn it on. That would have been useful.
1: (laughs) Right, that would have been useful, teaching a ghost to vacuum. (laughs) But the Oh, that's a funny story, that's a funny story.
0: Unari, as to you believe? Is that the
1: dog?
0: <laughs> yeah, she's been chewing on my hand the whole time. Uh, oh, she's re- but now she ran out of patience and she tried to jump in my lap. Okay. <laughs> she's still very playful, but she's not six months old, so.
1: Right, right. I have, uh, I have my Siamese cats who are very much a part of m- my desk right now, commandeering, because they hear me talking and they don't see you, so they think we're talking to them. They're, they're always going to the voice. Yeah,
0: yeah. Well, if you're a cat, the world does revolve around you, so... Oh, yes. Yes. <laughs>